That's what we're uh, Our speaker has not yet arrived. So what I would like to do is to draft James Lolan into saying a little bit about the historical provenance of the play and something about Windale. Huh. Well, goodness. Um, so I wasn't expecting to be, uh, to be speaking uh, today, but I will, uh, oh, here's Wayne. Um, uh, he, I will happily hand it off to our, he's getting mic'd up. Um, and so um, I'll just say a little about the performances coming up. Um, uh, Actors from the London Stage is a company that has been visiting UT Austin for 20 years or so. Um, Alan Friedman uh, was uh, in charge of the residency uh, for many years, and now uh, David Kornhaber has, has ably uh, taken over. Um, and uh, it's a group of five British actors who uh, tour around uh, American university campuses. Uh, they're based out of Notre Dame uh, University, and they um, come to university campuses and perform an entire Shakespeare play with just five actors, which is a, a feat of great uh, skill and uh, adroitness, which is always uh, entertaining to observe. Uh, Twelfth Night works particularly well uh, for this because it's one of the smaller casts of any of Shakespeare's plays. Um, but one thing that they generally do, and I believe well with this performance, is that the roles of the identical twins, uh, Viola and Sebastian, are played by the same actor, which is uh, uh, always fun to, uh, uh, to see. Um, so anyway, it'll be performed uh, next week on a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evenings uh, in the Bates Recital Hall um, at 7.30, I believe. Um, and then on Saturday night uh, at 7 o'clock out at Windale at the um, uh, theater barn at the Windale <coughs> Historical Center. And uh, I think tickets can be uh, attained online. But anyway, I would, I would heartily recommend that you uh, come see the play if you can. So um, I'll turn it back. Well, should I go straight into an introduction? All right. Um, it is uh, a great pleasure uh, to introduce my friend and colleague, Wayne Rebhorn, who is heroically coming straight out of class uh, to uh, uh, speak to us today about Carnival in Twelfth Night. Um, and uh, Wayne's level of distinction uh, can be surmised from the fact that uh, we have only one chair in the English department, and Wayne occupies it, right? the uh, Vacek uh, chair in uh, English literature. Um, he is a uh, Renaissance scholar of great international reputation, uh, has uh, published some uh, 10 books and translations, and as well as uh, dozens of articles, and uh, uh, is a particular expert on the literature of the Italian Renaissance, um, has done uh, editions and translations of Machiavelli, uh, Castiglione, um, and uh, maybe most uh, influentially, uh, Boccaccio's Decameron, uh, which he produced a um, uh, lovely and very handsome, very heavy um, uh, volume of, uh, a few years ago, which won the uh, Penn Award uh, for translation in 2014. So um, uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, great to be able to introduce Wayne. And I also wanted to say he is uh, someone who has done a great deal for his junior colleagues in the English department. Uh, he's uh, a fount of wisdom on matters like revising manuscripts, getting grants and fellowships. 
and uh, many of us, uh, myself included, have benefited from uh, his expertise and guidance and friendship. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Wayne Redborn. Oh, well, thank you for that. Uh, my reputation, as they say, exceeds me. Uh, but, uh, and just for a little self-publicity, this is just coming out now. The Norton Critical Edition of Machiavelli, which will appear within the next couple of weeks. This is a, an advanced copy. I love the cover. That, that, that's the young me. <laughs> when, when my hair was dark, and so on. Okay, um, this is the clicker, I think, yes? Yes, okay. Um, well, thank you, British Studies. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, James. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's in, late in the afternoon for me. Or early in the morning, I think my wife would say. But anyway, uh, Twelfth Night is a very interesting play. If you've read it, as I'm sure most of you have, if not all of you, um, you'll find it's an interestingly dark comedy. It's the last of the great romantic comedies Shakespeare writes before he writes the series of great tragedies, Hamlet and Othello and so on, and some what are called problem plays or problem co comedies, like All's Well That Ends Well and Measure for Measure, and so on. Uh, so it's, it's, in that sense, it's a little unlike Much Ado About Nothing, uh, As You Like It, Midsummer Night's Dream. It's, it's darker than those are, and in various ways. But that's not quite exactly what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about playing more in terms of fun, as well as the dark side of it. Oh, can you hear it at the back? Okay. I will speak more loudly. I've been accused of having a, a soft voice by my wife. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so the first thing is the title, Twelfth Night. You all know that's the night of Epiphany, the night when the Christ child was presented to the, you know, was visited by the three magi, magi, the three wise men, and it was the last of the Christmas holidays in a kind of a official way, but in many courts, the holidays just went on and on and on, and they lasted at least until Mardi Gras, until Carnival. Anyway, over these festivities, and throughout the year, we, our calendar is divided into weekdays and weekends. Their calendar was divided between holy days and holidays on the one hand, and ordinary days, work days. And uh, this was one of the special holidays because it was the end of 12 days of celebrating Christmas. I'm sure that when they went to church on Christmas Eve or whatever, it was very solemn. But otherwise, it was time for games and play and fun and so forth. And often over these holidays, someone was, and there was a whole collection of them, there was someone who was appointed as kind of like the organizer, known as the Lord of Misrule, not the Lord of Rule, because it's about breaking the rules of all sorts. Sometimes that character was called Festus, to suggest festivity and so on. And of course, Shakespeare's play prominently features a fool named Feste, in case we missed the connection. <laughs> but, uh, but this was not restricted to this, this particular holiday. Uh, what do we have in the play that suggests Twelfth Night? Nobody talks about it, the fact that it's snowing and cold outside, though I have seen productions where they pretend it's winter and so forth and so on. Um, the, the nearest you get is that there's some gift giving 
the ring that Olivia sends to Viola when he he thinks she's the she of anyway, whatever he she or he may be. Me. Um, the one place where <clears throat> there is um, more of a connection, and it's very small, is when Malvolius confronted the clowns early in the play, and Sir Toby and Feste rebuke him by saying, Dost thou think because thou art virtuous there shall be no more cakes and ale? And Feste adds, adds yes, and by St. Anne, and ginger shall be hot in the mouth too. Well, the typical thing you did, I, don't, I wish I had a more contemporary slide, is you had a wassail bowl. And the wassail bowl means, I think it's like Scandinavian word, which means good cheer or something like that. And what it contained was hot, hot ale spiced with ginger. And you may say, who in the world would want to drink hot ale? But you think England, in the middle of the winter, any time, really. <laughs> and then you, ginger, of course, would give it some taste, but also ginger is thought to be an aphrodisiac, and so it's a twofer, right? It's a flavor and makes it all sexy. And the cakes, in, in France, apparently about, a little before the time the play got written, there was a tradition of baking a cake to celebrate the three kings, right? And the cake would have, as it does today, a, a little, would sometimes have like a pebble or a bean, or in nowadays at Central Market, a little, tiny little baby. And the one who got the slice with the baby in it, and you're always wise to try to find out where that is and give it to the young kid in the group, gets to wear a crown. And, it's, it's all, and you'll find them around 12th, 12th night in Central Market or Whole Foods or Whole Paycheck or whatever, and you'll find them also, for some bizarre reason, around Mardi Gras, which is not what, that's not about that. But this, this was adopted by the English court because it was very popular in France. But aside from that, there's really not much that relates the play to this specific holiday at all. It's not about three, there doesn't mention the Magi, as far as I can tell, or the kings, or any of the other stuff. Uh, and indeed, at other places in the play, other holidays are invoked. When Malvolio comes in, cross-guarded and so on, Olivia says, oh, well, this is very Midsummer Madness. Mid Midsummer's Eve, right? Another one of uh, Shakespeare's, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, was said Midsummer's Eve, and that's another holiday when all sorts of hijinks and of worries behavior took place. And so it did on May, May 1st, May Day. And so Fabian, same scene, more matter for a May morning, right? Both of them are broadening out the concept. So I, I think that Shakespeare is essentially saying, and he does this in other places, he does it in Midsummer Night's Dream, where Duke Theseus comes upon the lovers in the woods and he immediately uh, talks about it being uh, a May morning and he refers to St. Valentine's Day. And of course we know it's midsummer. So what is it? I think the thing is, it's holiday in general, or as I prefer to call it, Mardi Gras or Carnival. And Carnival is a pretty well-established concept among historians and literary critics and so on. I think we go to the next one. Yes. Oh, here's the bit from A Midsummer Night's Dream where Theseus makes a comment about how the lovers rose up early to observe the rites of May. The rites of May, they went out into the woods to, to make whoopee. Uh, they haven't. It's, it's interesting. Mr. Rice's dream is all about the fact that people went out into the, the woods and, and had a roll in the hay or the roll in the heather or whatever it would be. And, and they don't. The, one, the closest they have, poor, you know, uh, uh, 
Lysander and Hermia are, are sort of going to take it, spend the night there, and, and he was just lying out next to her, and he, she says, oh, over there, go over there. So, disappointing. Uh, <laughs> and then Theseus, of course, doubles it with a reference to uh, St. Valentine, another holiday, and being these wood birds to couple now, of course, couple means have sex, and they're birds. Birds are notorious in the Renaissance for being sexual, right? Lecherous as a sparrow. And it's in Chaucer at one point. It, it's important for me to say that because it's what makes me understand bird watching. <laughs> Why would you do it? I saw another robin. Big deal. Oh, but the robin was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I want to connect the idea of carnival. Oh, let me just go on for a little bit with carnival. Um, hang on, move. There we go. Carnival, of course, comes from the word for meat, flesh. And uh, it was, that's, I mean, Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, fits the bill too. It's about eating, but it's about eating meat and so on, as opposed to eating fish, which is what you do in the traditional Catholic tradition. And it carries over to some extent, but when officially among Protestants, you eat fish in, is that me? No. Um, uh, as, a, as a form of, of, of penance, of abstinence, of respect, because Christ was going to spend the next 40 days preparing for the final moment, right, the death and resurrection. Um, and as I say, sometimes it went as, as, uh, as far as, as uh, that, well, there's a connection between Fat Tuesday and Twelfth Night, but I don't have to emphasize that. In England, it was called Shrovetide because at the time when you're going to be shriven, you're going to, be, you're going to confess and that would be Wednesday morning after, when perhaps Wednesday at midnight or whatever, after the fun was over, Lent begins, okay? And so I want to say, apply this, I mean, what, did, what was Carnival about? There's so many things, I, could, I made a list of them, but it's like enormous, right? Everything that you're not, your mother told you not to do, right? <laughs> That's what you did on Carnival. You drank too much, you ate too much, you sang and danced and made merry, you mocked authority and law, you put on disguises. They even put on plays during carnival. Uh, you played games. Uh, uh, there was a lot of aggression, verbal abuse, physical abuse. And I hope as I'm saying these things, you can see, oh, well, yeah, yeah, they're all in the play. And of course, there's lots of sex, jokes, body, behavior, and, and sometimes even, apparently, weddings were celebrated at carnival. That's kind of wild, because weddings are kind of like much more socially approved kind of form of sexuality than what we're talking about. But I'm going to talk about carnival in both plots of the play. It's more obvious to everyone uh, during the, in the, the, clown, the clown plot, uh, with the clowns eating and drinking, not all of them, but you know, getting drunk. Toby is drunk all the time. He, he initiates Sir Andrew into that practice, it would seem. Uh, Mariah doesn't, I don't think, drink, and Fabian is, it's hard to know. But they all play tricks. They all get their pleasure from pulling the wool over the eyes of Malfoy, tricking him with the letter that they leave that's supposedly from Olivia that says she loves him, and so on. Um, excuse me. One of the, Shakespeare doesn't refer to Carnival or Mardi Gras in the play, but he does have the characters talk repeatedly about madness and folly. These two terms come up again and again. There's even a fool, right, the embodiment of folly. And that's, that's the term, I think, that governs in a lot of ways all this, because it's the 
it's the thing that isn't rational, isn't normal, isn't normative, and so on. Um, in fact, the play itself is something that you could put on at Carnival. We do not know that it was put on at Twelfth Night. I think the first performance was sometime in like late January, early February, so it was not produced on Twelfth We'd like to think, it's sort of like, we'd like to think that plays, Shakespeare played Prospero in, in, in uh, The Tempest, but there's not a shred of evidence. But it's a, but it's a, it's a lovely fantasy. And, they, and, and Fabian sort of underscores the fact that this is a play. They're in a play, of course, and they put on a play. They put on the play of tricking Malvolio in the play. And they watch it and make fun of him. We watch it and laugh at him and so on. So we're in cahoots with the, with the clowns at that moment. Um, when they come together, uh, at one point, um, Feste makes an allusion to, how now, my hearts? Did you ever see the picture of we three? Sir Toby, of course, knows what he's talking about and says, welcome, ass. The picture is, of course, of two fools, one holding a bauble with his image in it, usually used to make dirty, obscene gestures, because it's a nice long stick. And um, another one, they have donkey ears and a coxcomb, you see in the top, it bells. There's the standard motley clothing made up of different colors and so on, but only two. Who's the third fool? Yeah. You're a fool because you don't recognize that you're the fool, or you're a fool because you recognize you are the fool. Well, either way, you're the fool. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Malvolio, when he is tricked into wearing yellow stockings and which are cross-guarded, is, is made into a fool, right? He's made to look a bit like a clown, because otherwise, in most productions, he's dressed in black, right? Uh, they want to emphasize both his seriousness and the fact that he's called a Puritan, whether that meant he was really a Puritan in the sense of a religious reformer or just puritanical in our sense of the term, makes no difference. Uh, and here he's, of course, by yellow, wearing yellow stockings, a color which Olivia detests, we find out. Uh, uh, and cross-guarded. Oh, cross-guard is great because the order of the garter was a big deal and cross-guarding was very much in fashion. But it went out of fashion before Malvolio is tricked into putting his legs into cross-guardering. I like this modern picture. It gets at something of it. He's a little fat for Malvolio, if you ask me. But you get the idea at any rate. Um, what we see in the plot, in the clown plot, is something that is very familiar from Carnival, namely a battle, as it were, between Carnival and Lent. And the great, let's see, oh, I'm, I'm going to skip some of it. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not. Because here, Maria Mariah is putting him down. He's like most villainously low class, like a pedant, low class, teachers, I'm sorry, that keeps a school in the church. He doesn't even have his own school. It's a triple downer. And, and Mario says, he is sure possessed. He's possessed by his fantasy of marrying Olivia and becoming Count Malvolio and so on. He's possessed. And if you're possessed, of course, that means you're mad. You're crazy. But, of course, so are the clowns. When Maria says, I've got a, Mario says, I've got a plot, Sir Toby says, possess us, possess us. Almost like diabolical possession. It's certainly madness to take him over. Anyway, the central 
uh, thing that happens in Carnival, here's a wonderful pa painting by Peter Bruegel the Elder, shows us the fight between Carnival and Lent. And you can see it here in the foreground. I'm going to show it to you right there. But it's like one of the, the Bruegel's pictures are full of stuff. They're enormously crowded and confused. And it's a little hard to figure out, like, where is this? Where are you supposed to look? You know? And so here's where you're supposed to look, right? And there's Carnival, the guy, right? Uh, wearing a very phallic knife, uh, carrying a spit with a pig on it, wearing a cake or something as a headpiece, and so on, and, and, and straddling a barrel of ale or whatever. And there's Lent, the thin old woman with a, a, a thing I think you used to get bread out of the oven, with a couple of fish, stockfish, cod, dried cod, because that's what they, 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 they lived on dried cod in, in a way. The Portuguese apparently have more than 365 ways of preparing dried cod, turning it into codfish cakes and so on, because that's what they could store over the winter and forever, and then just plunk it in water again and again and again and again to get the salt out, and then they could eat it. And she's a little bit of bread and some pretzels. I guess that's a, I don't know what that means. But at any rate, <laughs> she's pulled by a couple of figures who look rather uh, saintly. Um, the idea that there's an opposition between Carnival and Lent is something that Shakespeare never talks about directly, but in Henry IV, Part One, when Hal and Falstaff, slim Hal, fat Falstaff, right? Lent, kinda. Carnival, certainly. When they trade insults, as they do frequently, they talk in terms that evoke these things. Prince, why thou clay-brained guts, thou naughty-pated fool, I misspelled that, sorry. Thou horse and obscene, greasy, tallow, keech, mess of tallow. And Prince, again, this sanguine coward, this bed-presser, this horse-breaker, this huge hill of flesh, over and over again. It's about flesh. Falstaff gives him as good as he gets. It's blood, you starveling, you eel-skin, you dry-neat's tongue, you bull's pizzle, that was a penis, you stockfish, dried cod. And again, there's a devil haunts thee, the likeness of old fat man, a ton of man is thy companion. You probably know this wonderful exchange in the fourth uh, scene of the second act. Uh, why dost thou converse with that trunk of... And, and they're, they're, they, they piled on, right? They, they loved it and so on and other. Now, why dost thou converse with that? He's talking to Falstaff as though Falstaff were him, because he's saying, play, play, play the prince. And why are you spending all your time with Falstaff? Why dost thou converse with that trunk of humors, that bolting hutch of beastliness, that swollen parcel of droppies, that huge bombarded sack, that stuffed cloak bag of guts, that roasted manningtree ox with the pudding in his belly? Well, that's what you might well find one on Carnival, on Mardi Gras. A whole ox roasted with a pudding in his belly. Of course, pudding meant stuffed guts. So anyway, his guts were stuffed inside where his guts would have been. And so there they are again, the two arch enemies. Um, in, a, in typical fashion, in this contest, which is at the center of Carnival, symbolically, if not literally, Carnival wins. Carnival wins. Because you're celebrating Carnival. But then, inevitably, you know, it's it's it's, it's embrace of pleasures and it's exuberance, it's irreverence, and so on. Triumphs over Lenten restriction, and so on. But it's a pyrrhic victory because Carnival always loses. You know, uh, Carnival, Mardi Gras, then Ash Wednesday.
January 6th and January 7th, which is, I don't think, a holiday at all. And so it's going to, you're not going to win, in a sense, permanently. The triumph is, is temporary. And of course, one of the, considering the anti-authoritarian nature of a lot of carnivalesque celebrations, that's one of the reasons why it was kind of tolerated by the authorities. Because yeah, the next day they'll go back to work. If, if they get over their hangover, to be sure. Uh, plus, in this play, in it, not only are they are we going from carnival to a more Lenten world, uh, some of the principal clowns are actually punished, beaten up, Toby and Andrew in particular, by Sebastian, who they think is Viola slash Cesario, but he's a real man, and he knocks them around. Uh, when, we go to, when we enter the world of carnival, let me see if I can get this. No, I'm back there. Um, we're entering a world, our anthropologists would talk about it as a liminal space, a space in betwixt and between. The real world, the real world, carnival in between. Rules are suspended, anything goes, pleasure is the norm, and so on. It, it offers release for the participants, and, 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 and scholars talk about how the participants included the audience, because you were sort of watching, but then you became part of, and then you were watching again, and then became part of, and so on. Um, so you had a release from the normal restraints and restrictions of society, rules and regs and so on. Um, so at the same time, anthropologists would say, well, how do you know it's a rule? Only when you break it. Then you know it's a rule. So it had a cognitive function of reinforcing, ironically, the rules of every day. Uh, and indeed, there's also a sense, maybe, uh, that you get tired after a while of playing Hal certainly talks about that in the first, second, second scene, second scene of Henry IV, Part One. But if every day we're playing holidays, you get tired, and they get tired of the, the, the play. By about two thirds of the way through the play, three quarters of the way, Toby says, "God, I wish we were out of this." You know, the, the, the tormenting of Malvolio by putting him in a dark room and so on. And he says, besides, I'm really in trouble with my niece, so it would be a good thing if we were, were beyond that. Uh, I think Shakespeare offers a deeper critique of Carnival merely than the fact that it is temporally limited. I think uh, what he uh, gives us, by the fact that it's sort of overdone with Malvolio in a way, by the end, the poor guy's in a dark room. He's tormented by Feste, who pretends to be Sir Topas, the curate, and then Feste, and goes back and forth. So it's a tour de force performance. And Malvolio's sort of suffering in there. And he comes out, he's, he's miserable. And I think Shakespeare designs the place that your, your, sympathies, your sympathies begin to shift. And you begin to see what's really involved in that. It's sadism. You really want to hurt Malvolio. You really want to, and of course he deserves it after a fashion, right? But does he deserve it? You know? Uh, I think at first you say, yeah, it's really funny. What a dud, what a dunce, he deserves it. And I says, well, uh, uh, maybe they're taking it a little bit too far. There's a thin line between just right and too far, and they may have crossed it. Um, Maria, Mariah talks about, you know, following him around, says, look at her language. I, Told him like I was a murderer. You've not seen such a thing as I can hardly be forbear hurling things at him. I know my lady will strike him, right? Just because he looks like such a clown and so forth and so on. And it's going to make comments to her, which she finds a little strange and maybe a bit impertinent. Uh, 
in the scene, which we don't have time to review, when they're overlooking him, being mad, he keeps saying things about Toby and Andrew and they want to hit him, give him a smack on the lips and so on. And I suppose in a certain sense we do too, maybe. It's important to note, by the way, that in the play, Shakespeare drops a number of hints of an analogy for what happens to Malvolio. Bear baiting. Bear baiting was a sport that was accepted in Shakespeare's society. Even the queen went to bear baitings. What is bear baiting? Well, you set dogs on a bear or a bull. Bulls were sometimes used. And they fought. And the sport was, you bet, which dog will survive? Will the dogs get the bear? Will the bear get the dogs? Fun, isn't it? I don't think so. Our sensibilities are such that we would not enjoy this, I hope. Uh, the Puritans in Shakespeare's time didn't like it. Good for them. Did Shakespeare like it? I don't know. I don't, I'm not so sure. I mean, Sir Andrew, who wants to find out how the, the slick, sophisticated ones live, like Sir Toby, ha ha, uh, says, I wish I'd spent more time on tongues, because he's always confused by language, than I've done on such things as bear baiting. And Sir Toby talks to uh, Fabian and the others, getting him in on the plot. What would you do to get even with this guy? Uh, I would exult, man. You know he brought me out of favor with my lady about a bear baiting here. A bear baiting in her house, in the courtyard, in front of her house. Wow. And so I think Shakespeare's doing this deliberately. I can't say for sure what he felt about bear baiting and bull baiting, but it's pretty negative here. Whether you're the bear, well, more importantly, whether you're the dogs. And remember the lawyers with which Malvolio exits the play. I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. Pack of dogs? Pack of wolves? Take your pick. So I think Shakespeare shifts our sympathies by means of this analogy. We're watching the bear being baited, and we're betting, or cheering, or whatever we would do. Um, at the end of the play, there's a kind of disillusionment. Sarah has been built for money by Sir Toby, who promises to get her him in with uh, Olivia. And they've both been beaten up by Sebastian. And Sandra comes in and says, we'll go and get dressed, you know, treated by the surgeon together. And Sir Toby turns on him and says, will you help a nass head and a knave, a coxcomb and a knave, a thin-faced knave, a gull? And there's no stage direction. They leave. What do you feel if you're Sir Andrew? It's been pretty disillusioning, isn't it? It's like what happens to Malvolio. I want to switch to the main plot of the play, which is the romantic plot. It's what we start with, and what we end with in a way. And yet, too, is marked by a basic carnivalistic trait, gender confusion. Who's the guy and who's the gal? Well, as you were saying, the same actor, James was saying, the production is going to play, of course, both Sebastian and Viola. So, is it a guy? Is it a gal? I don't know. Who, is it a guy or a gal? It's going to be a gal. Okay, good. Anyway, and it's, it's, it's very confusing. I mean, does Orsino like Viola slash Cesario? Because she's kind of a, he's kind of a, she kind of like feminine or whatever? Does she, does Olivia dislike Orsino, little bear, as his name means, because 
he's kind of a bear. He's kind of a, a guy, guy. And she really likes Viola Cesario because she's more like a girl. Ah, my mind is confused, and so forth and so on. But Shakespeare rescues us from that. By the time the play is over, there are not, there's not one, not two, but three perfectly normal heterosexual marriages. Everything's straightened out. Sebastian arrives on the scene. They discover he's a guy, supposedly, but I guess he is. Viola is, 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 is a girl. Of course, she's really a guy, too. She's a boy playing the girl's part. And, uh, and they, they can be paired off with women. And even offstage, Sir Toby and Mariah get married as well. So yay for heterosexual love. Yay for the norms of society. Uh, the confusion is over. Um, and in fact, we can see it at the end there. Sebastian sort of normalizes things for us. So comes it, lady, you've been mistook by taking Viola as me, or taking a woman as a man. But nature to her biased you in that. In other words, nature speaks. She wants one man and one woman. God, this would be a great line for the present administration. You would have been, you would have been contracted to a maid, nor are you therein by my life to see if you are betrothed both to a maid and a man. Man, oh. That's a very confusing thing to say, <laughs> to say the very least. And Orsino, finally realizing that Viola Cesario is Viola, not Cesario, Viola, he says, Cesario, come! And you expect, well, a big smooch, a hug, whatever. For so you shall be while you are a man. But what in other habits you are seen? Orsino's mistress and his fancy's queen. Oh, so whether you're a man or woman depends on your clothes. He can't embrace her while she's wearing trousers, or the equivalent in Anaheim. So it says something about gender issues, right? Is gender something attached to your body, what kind of body you have? Is it attached to how you think about your body? Or is it attached to how you dress? Guys wear suits, women wear dresses. That's how we tell them apart, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't know, I guess. I'm not going to speculate about that one. Um, but the thing is that Shakespeare, again, does stuff that or complicates the situation because the play moves from gender confusion like crazy in the middle, a gender confusion really anchored in the fact that boys were playing girls anyway, and then at the end we have the normative marriages, heterosexual marriages. Everything is straightened out. We can all go home knowing that the world is still a good place to live in. But he includes a character who's not normative, Antonio, the guy who takes care of Sebastian, who loves Sebastian. I'm uh, sorry, Shakespeare. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to skip this part. There he is. Uh, here we go. Uh, he, this is in the very last scene. And it kind of, it's a little dark note. I thought this is a dark play with dark, dark touches. And he's talking about how Sebastian really isn't recognizing him because he's in love with, with Olivia. And Antonio's, he never really was in love with Antonio, as far as I can tell, but Antonio certainly was with him. He says, that most ungrateful boy there by your side from the rude season, raged and foamy mouth did I redeem. A wreck past hope he was. His life I gave him and did there to, did there to add my love without tension or restraint. All his dedication for his sake did I expose myself, pure for his love. He talks about directly being in love with 
Sebastian. Does this mean he loved him in a kind of platonic way? I, I love my male friends and I love my female friends, kind of thing? Or is it a little more erotic or emotional, an attachment? And, um, hang on. Uh, let me see, this is first, let me get this, make sure I get the order. Yeah, that's first. This is the last time we see Antonio. And all this is, Sebastian, are you? Oh, that's that. That's that. And there's, we don't hear a peep out of Antonio. He doesn't leave the stage. He's just there, the forgotten man, the one who's excluded. Finally, I'd like to try to bring these things together in a way that's, um, that is my attempt to answer a question about the play that critics generally, I don't think, have answered. I haven't read everything on Twelfth Night. I'm too old for that. I'd be dead. But anyway, um, but critics generally have trouble with the location of the play. Why in heaven's name does Shakespeare pick Illyria, of all places, to set it in? As opposed to, you know, Venice or London or Vienna or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> I think he gives us a clue as to what we should do with that. Um, here's Illyria, just so you know. Or the Illyrians are over there. That's the Roman Empire. And as you can see, it's sort of like where Yugoslavia used to be, where all those countries, I can't remember how many there are, but basically, in the ancient world, it was a province of the Roman Empire. And in Shakespeare's time, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire that controlled uh, most of the Balkans. And nowadays, we'd call it Albania, but that would not have been... So it's really, it's, I think part of it's just like it's an exotic place far, far away. You know, there's nothing much about ancient Illyria in the text at all. No classical ruins or anything. Nothing about the Ottoman Turks or something there. Um, just, it's just Illyria. But why does he choose that? Well, I think it's because he, he wants to encourage us to think of something that sounds like Illyria. Certainly, uh, Viola does, when she's told by the, uh, the sea captain, I think he is, who brings her ashore, that's, and she says, where am I? And she says, well, you're in Illyria. And she, she responds, and what should I do in Illyria? My brother, who's supposedly drowned, my brother, he is in Elysium. Illyria, Elysium. You can see the sort of phonetic connection. Um, in a, a, a wonderful study called Puzzling Shakespeare, my former colleague, Leo, Leo Marcus, talking in a chapter about places in Shakespeare, mentions that Illyria, and she has like two sentences about it. She says, Illyria, oh, Shakespeare chose it because it would sound like Elysium or delirium. And then she goes on to say, oh, it's just a, it's a utopian kind of place. Well, it is kind of, I suppose, all those happy marriages, right? Uh, but of course, there are a lot of un unhappy things too. The truth is that, that Shakespeare never uses the word delirium. It doesn't occur in his vocabulary. It does, however, exist in his world. The term enters the medical literature in England around 1592 or thereabouts. I'm sure I have not investigated this. It was in the Latin medical literature long before that. It had been coined 
way back in the first century by a fellow named, uh, I've got his name somewhere here, it's a doctor, Celsus, maybe. I have no idea who he was, but he coined the term. And delirium comes from the Latin word deliro, delirare, meaning to go outside the furrow when you're planting. So it's about escaping from the place where you should be, right? Getting outside the norm in some way. And, and, and people, of course, had a lot of trouble defining what it was because it's not something, it's, it's rather, no, it's, it's not something. It's not something, it's not something. What is the not something? So, incoherent speech, ravings, hallucinations, physical restlessness, like twitching, I guess, frenzied excitement, and they, there are a bunch of them. You can look it up in the OED. All sorts of different definitions. And to this day, from what I gather from the psychiatry history, they still don't know quite what it is. They know that it, it's a moving outside the furrow, but what manifestation it has is obscure. So I think that although Shakespeare, as I said, never uses the word, he prefers mad, possessed, uh, dream, and so on. He kind of knows what this, what's the, that that's what's going on here. This strange state where you step outside the bounds, the rules, and so on. And one doctor who has lasted, for my purposes, uh, named uh, Thomas, uh, what's his name, uh, Thomas Willis, wrote, he was born in, in like 1720, so he's well after Shakespeare, thought it was like a waking dream. And look at Sebastian when he is met Olivia who throws herself at him and doesn't seem unhappy about it at all, says, what relish is in this? How runs the stream? Or am I mad? Or else is this a dream? This must be a dream. Let fancy still my sense in lay this deep. If it be thus to dream, still let me sleep. <laughs> and I think this is an important moment because delirium was in the medical literature and in a lot of the the comments that you find in non-medical literature, it's negative. Delirium's a sickness. It's something you want to cure. It's not a good thing. It's a, related to frenzies and frantic, and you'll hear the same sentences with words like that. But I think Shakespeare is anticipating, maybe, our sense that, like, for instance, when you're in love, you're delirious, right? There's even a song. I can't remember the song, but, but I'm delirious, or it's delirious, or something like that. Delicious, delightful, delirious. Um, we wouldn't want to think of love as delirium, like, like delirium tremens, that's a later addition, but oh, I've drunk too much and my hands shake and so on. We think of it, it can be, it's, it's borrowed obviously from the idea that when you're in love, when you're engaged emotionally or whatever in something, you're delirious, right? You're out of your mind, you're, you're out of your gourd. So Shakespeare's giving it a positive twist in this play. And um, I think that that's important because even though no, no doctor in his time would have said, oh, delirium's a good thing. But he does, implicitly. I have no proof that he's thinking of delirium. But by gosh, what else does delirium sound like? If it's not to designate an actual place, then why not make it delirium, as Leo Marcus suggested some time ago? A long time ago, a French critic, Roger Croix, uh, wrote a book about games, and he, he noted note there are four different kinds of games, generally speaking, all of which you choose to play, right? There's agon, or competition. Agon's the Greek word. Alia, or chance. Mimicry, or mimesis, or role-playing. 
and illings or vertigo. Okay? Now, that's, of course, I'm drawing on my, my ancient history here, but I think that, that's interesting because if you think of the first three kinds of games, they're good all the time. Masquerading, playing roles, disguising in one form or another. Chance, it's chance that throws poor uh, Viola and later her brother on that particular sea, uh, seaside and so on. And at one point, I, th I think I have that quote here, but see. No, that's not true. Anyway, she says, I don't know what to do about this. We'll just let the, we'll just let the time decide. What will we're, you know, let the sea decide. She changes her metaphors, but I, I, I didn't make, do this on purpose, and I'm not going to be able to get out of it, which is very peculiar. You think about the play for a second. Why in heaven's name doesn't you just tell Orsino, hey, Orsino, I'm a woman. It's okay. She doesn't have to protect herself anymore. That's why she adopted the man's guys in the first place, right? So a lone woman on the shore of a strange country? No, that's a lone guy, right? Uh, and so she can handle herself. Not, not really, as we discover in the fight, but the duel. But nevertheless, the point is that, uh, anyway, she's she sort of going to let, let things work, work themselves out. No chances at, at stake there. Um, competition? Oh, my goodness. Everybody's in competition with everybody else, it would seem. Malvolio, of course, would love to smack Toby, right? He says, kiss my ring and you know, genuflect to me as Count Malvolio. But they, of course, do him, do him one again at back and, and make a fool out of him. Uh, the one kind of game we haven't talked about, or one doesn't talk about much with this play, is illings, which means a whirlpool in Greek, or vertigo. Where does we get vertigo? Kaiwa says, well, you, you take drugs, hallucinogenics. You uh, uh, ride roller coasters. You spin. You twirl around. And that's something that is in the play, if I'm right. Sir Toby, at one point, defending his drunkenness, said, I'll drink to her as long as passage in my throat and drink in Illyria. He's a coward and a question that will not drink to my niece till his brains turn at the toe like the parish top. Parishes did have tops. And they would be, they, people would use whips to move them around. And it was a good way to get your blood stirring and warm up and so on. Here's an example I found in one book. I think it looks later than the Renaissance, but they're whipping a top. You can probably see it to the bottom. But our, our friend Peter Bruegel, shows us here a, a, a picture, this is an extra bit of it, of uh, children's games. Children would take tops and use a whip. I have no idea how they did this, but use it, and he kept it going. And I suspect it was like, I've got my top, you've got your tops, so let's see who can keep their tops rolling the, the longest. And it's very much, I think, uh, this idea of spinning around. It's, it's the game, it's, it's a kind of game, a spinning game. And if you think about games, especially about spitting, think about how it goes back to our childhoods. When you're a child, you twirl around and around and around, and you fall down, because you're experiencing vertigo, right? And it's fun, isn't it? It's fun. The laws of gravity don't matter. Walking in a straight line, you can't do that after you spin around. The world's going crazy around you. It seems to me that that childhood regressive experience it's in a sense what we experience in both plots in different ways. In, in, in Twelfth Night, we spin around vertiginously. 
until everything, of course, is, as I said, sort of straightened out more or less at the end. Of course, it's most evident in inebriation. I suppose you've never had that problem, but you can get falling down drunk, I believe is the expression we use, right? Uh, it's a little bit like that spinning top. Down we go. And so it's also a bit like the play. Sooner or later, the spinning stops. Sooner or later, the spinning stops, and then everything goes back to normal. And in some ways, it's a relief. But in some ways, it's a disappointment. Because it was fun. It was fun until it stopped. And if we look at well, what succeeds that, uh, oh, oh, one other reference to the top that I, I, I need to mention. At the end, Feste sums it up. He's, he's telling Malvolio that you got what you deserved, right? But expresses it in terms of the whirly gig of time, brings in his revenges. Whirly gig is another word for top, a spinning top. So time just whirls around and whirls around, revenge, and the play ends. This is what it ends with, Feste's epilogue. I'd sing it if I had a singing voice, but I don't. And what is it? Is it it's a, a cold dunk in the rain. It's winter again, all of a sudden. Or if not winter, it's certainly not, not, not a nice season. After all, he, he could say, for the sun, it shines every day. But no, it's the rain. What happens when you grow up? Because this is a regressive experience. This carnival-like vertigo we've just been through. You discover that child stuff is child stuff. You discover that there are thieves and knaves. And you shut your gate so they don't steal your stuff. And here in Texas, we shoot them. But you know, you get the idea. Uh, when you get come to wives, when you get married, you can't swagger around and bully your wife. Don't think it for a second, guys. For those who are not married, remember that. Uh, and when you get to your bed, go to sleep, you get up the next morning after you've drunk, yourself on the table, you have a drunken head. You know, it hurts, it's painful. It's a pretty awful dunk in the, way, dunk in the rain, isn't it? At the end, oh, what I left out, that. The last stanza, a great while, a great while ago the world begun with hey-ho, the wind and rain. But that's all one, our play is done. And then the last line changes. And we'll strive to please you every day. You can come back tomorrow. And you'll still have, and you'll have that pleasure of delirium again. And then again, and again, as often as you like. Thank you.